Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. Remember, the court does not in any way sanction or approve of the podcast. These are just my observations and thoughts. Today, I will bring you four cases. Three of them are in the civil realm. One is a politics case, and one of the civil ones is a family case. That's my area of the law, so if you sense a little more enthusiasm, perhaps I'll spend a little more time on my first case, which is a family law case. It's a palimony case. It's a statute of frauds case. So let's just jump right on in. It is Moynihan v. Lynch. And the opinion is penned by Justice Albin. It's a unanimous decision by the New Jersey Supreme Court, a court of five for the moment. So it's a 5-0 ruling. And the background of this is kind of interesting. So Moynihan was a flight attendant. Lynch was a pilot. He lived in New Hampshire. She lived in New Jersey. He had an apartment in Philadelphia but when he was, I guess, traveling through the airlines. And they met, they started a relationship, and Moynihan was in the process of a separation and divorce. She divorces, a house is purchased in Bordentown. She puts up the down payment, $8,000, that she gets from her father. The house, title, and mortgage are all put into Lynch's name. Lynch apparently lives there. There's some factual disputes regarding that, but he lives in the Bordentown house as well as his New Hampshire home. Moynihan has children, and they live for a number of years in a family-like relationship. When there were rocky times, they discussed what would occur in the case of a breakup. And at some point, Mr. Lynch took out his uh, pen, and he proposed the following, that when they break up, that he would pay the house off within five years. He would pay property taxes for two years after he left, and he would pay Lynch $100,000 five years after the breakup. That's basically the deal. They run into the revision to the statute of frauds. In 2010, the statute of frauds was amended to include a unique provision as it relates to the requirement for both people to have independent counsel. The court goes to great lengths to describe all of the very important things that you can do in our system of law and adjudicating disputes without a lawyer. You can defend yourself when you're subjected to imprisonment for life. You can represent yourself when you buy and sell a car. On and on and on. The court cites back to 1677, the West New Jersey concessions, whereby the common law provided that men, and it was just men at the time, a man could plead his own case if he please. The 1683 East New Jersey agreements as well, and the common law in Great Britain, all providing that you can represent yourself in just about anything. So our legislature had drafted the change, and it was signed by Governor Corzine at the time, requiring both parties. And again, it's a very unique piece of legislation that requires both parties to have independent counsel, not just the suggestive language, for example, in the Uniform Premarital Agreement Act, where 
the party who's the, the party to whom the agreement is sought to be enforced had to at least have the opportunity to have counsel. And we have a lot of case law on that. This case got attention from people in my end of the business. The Bar Association Family Law Section provided a brief, as well as the American Association of Matrimonial Lawyers. A number of excellent lawyers got involved as amici here. To the court below, the trial court found that this was not a palimony agreement. In other words, the statute of frauds didn't apply it was sort of an orderly turnover deal. Here's what we're going to do if we go our separate ways. Businesses do this all of the time when they're going to dissolve a, a corporation or a partnership. And that's how the trial court viewed it. The appellate division reversed and, and said, no, this is clearly a palimony agreement that fits under the 2010 statute of frauds. There was also an argument, I consider this a lesser point, that the party's agreement, i.e. an agreement for support for life between Moynihan and Lynch, had been made prior to the 2010 amendments. The trial court didn't buy it. The appellate division didn't buy it. The Supreme Court didn't buy it. So forget that part. Let's work on the written agreement, not the oral promise or the oral palimony agreement. The court was faced with a number of points by the appellant here. One, that Moynihan was deprived of her constitutional rights under the contract clause. Another, under a substantive due process argument. And the point primarily promoted by the amici here, that the court has the power to exercise equitable remedies, and that those equitable remedies should exist in parallel to the statute of frauds. With that set up, let me speak a little bit more about the facts. So Mr. Lynch prepares the agreement. Ms. Moynihan says, shouldn't we have lawyers look at it? Don't worry about it. Ms. Moynihan doesn't have money to go hire a lawyer. Lynch is not going to provide it. On the stand, Lynch cannot really decide what his position is on the agreement, testifying as to a question about whether there was an agreement. No, not really. I thought we were negotiating onward. And then finally, we had an agreement and that the genesis of the agreement was to, quote, shut her up. And on the issue of whether Lynch would live up to the terms that he penned, he stated that he was a man of his word so that Ms. Moynihan could count on it. So how do we get this whole palimony thing going anyway? Well, I remember very distinctly as a kid, probably an early teen, the case of Lee Marvin. Now, if you don't know from Lee Marvin, you got to check out the movie Big Red One. He plays the sergeant who kills a German who is trying to surrender in World War I, goes on to fight in World War II. Excellent movie. Some people believe the greatest, certainly one of the greatest war movies ever. Okay, off that commercial, check out Lee Marvin, Big Red One. Lee Marvin had a non-wife wife for many years who, when they broke up, sought financial relief. And celebrity divorce lawyer Marvin Mitchelson coined the term palimony in New Jersey. The seminal case that I learned and had relied upon until the statute of frauds 
was amended was the Kozlowski case. Both people happened to have the same last name. So it was Kozlowski v. Kozlowski. And the court found that even though the Kozlowskis were married to other people, that they were in such a family-like unit, a marital unit, that when they broke up, that Mr. Kozlowski's promise to support Ms. Kozlowski was a promise that was enforceable. And we got going with our palimony about 40, 42, 43 years back. I think this is a very big case. It's rare that regular old family law cases make it up to the New Jersey Supreme Court. We see them make it up in sort of quasi-family and criminal contexts together. We see a good amount of DCPP cases that deal with termination of parental rights and fundamental constitutional rights of parents and children get up to the highest court, but not that many, let me say, meat and potatoes, families breaking up and those cases ending up in the New Jersey Supreme Court. So I was pretty excited about it. But a little sidebar, sorry, it is the bullet sidebar. I got in contact with my old colleague, Angelo Sarno, who represented the prevailing party here. I expressed that I felt this is one of the biggest family law cases in decades. He typically demurred, but I say I'm right, and he's humble. We appreciate his work and all the work for the folks in the Bar Association and AAML. So let's get to the two things that the court didn't find. First of all, the court does not find that the statute is violative of the contract clause. The court didn't buy it, goes through an analysis. The court also did not get to the Bar Association's point and the AAML's point that we ought to look to all of these equitable remedies, equitable estoppel constructive trust, that parties don't enter into contract-like relationships when they get together in a romantic setting. They don't think like business people. They don't think like two partners buying a piece of land to develop it or start a business. They are driven by love, romance, a big future, a long future together, how their families might integrate if they've already got children, other relatives. So that's a very, very different calculus when you run into a cohabitation relationship in a romantic setting. So what did the court find? The court found that the statute is invalid on the grounds of substantive due process that Article 1 of the New Jersey Constitution adopts the common law in that, as I shared before, from the 1600s, and it goes back further even, that we have the right to represent ourselves. We have the right to be our own attorney, and a statute cannot deprive us of that right and hence deprive us of the benefits of the bargain that was made. So, bottom line, the court does not address the equitable remedies. The court does not find that there was an oral palimony agreement in place prior to 2010. The court finds that there was a palimony agreement here. The document goes back to 2012 and that the parties entered into a binding palimony agreement. I believe this really creates a wall in the palimony area. I don't know what the shape of the field of battle will be. I don't know if it's four walls or eight walls, but this creates one wall so that there, there can be written agreements. Oral agreements will not be honored. 
you know, anything post 2010 and that the dirty trick that Mr. Lynch tried to play on Ms. Moynihan by offering a bunch of conciliatory terms while having his uh, fingers crossed behind his back will not be honored. We don't know where we are with the equitable remedies. Would they be applied in this type of scenario where there's potential for a lot of unfairness and a lot of loss? by Moynihan in the absence of this writing. So there's still a lot to be decided over the years, but I think this is an important case. And the court, again, what does it do? The court goes policy, 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 back to the common law, and you get a scholarly opinion from Justice Albin, joined by the four other sitting justices. Next one is a commercial defamation case. You don't get too many of those in the New Jersey Supreme Court. It's an interesting case. This is Justice Fernandez Vina's opinion. It looks like it might have been his last opinion. I've got a six-member court unanimous decision. Grafnet v. Retaris, R-E-T-A-R-U-S. Grafnet got a hold of some marketing material from Retaris and is critical of GraphNet. Retara says it was for internal training purposes, not to be put out to clients. It got in the hands of a big client of GraphNet, specifically J.P. Morgan Chase, obviously a huge bank. GraphNet provides what was described in the syllabus as cloud facsimile services. I got a chuckle out of that. Of course, all these cases take years to percolate from initial dispute up into the Supreme Court. So uh, I don't know when the last time anyone listening sent a fax. But the point is, both of these outfits are in the corporate cloud messaging data business and their competitors. So back to the trial court. The judge charged the jury on defamation damages. And essentially, there's a competition in this case between compensatory damages and nominal damages. And in the model jury charge, there was some conflicting language. The description of nominal damages, both states, nominal damages are not designed to compensate the plaintiff. And in another section, designed to compensate the plaintiff with a small amount of money because they suffered from an infraction by the other side. Well, this confusion in the jury or or mischaracterization of the two types of damages that were at bar, compensatory and nominal, really ended up with numbers that the judge and the defense thought were outer-worldly. So on compensatory damages, the jury awarded zero dollars. On nominal damages, $800,000. The judge reformed under the remittiture concept the nominal damages to $500. The appeal surrounds both the problematic language in the model jury charge, which no one objected to, and the failure of the trial court to get the consent of the plaintiff to remittiture. So, In a case where there's a motion for remitter, the court must give the plaintiff the option to either permit the court to reform an outer worldly award of damages on the remitter ground to remit it 
or you get a new jury on damages only. The choice was not given to this plaintiff. Hence, there'll be a remand, new trial on damages, and a recommendation to the model jury charge committee to get this one straight and to clean up the nominal damages language. Next one is pure politics. Pure, pure politics is the in matter in the matter of establishment of congressional districts by the New Jersey Redistricting Commission. So if you pay any attention to New Jersey news, whenever this happens, this is hot news. The media loves to cover it. You can get a lot of good stories out of it. This is a unanimous decision. Chief Justice Ravner is the author, and it, it's put together differently than a normal opinion out of the court. It's, it's sort of just numbered almost like a certification or a pleading. So every time we've got a redistrict, there's an elaborate statutory process that involves politicians appointing a bunch of politicians on the Republican side and the Democratic side. And then a tiebreaker is chosen. The tiebreaker is called the chair. And it's usually someone with some heft who's been around a long time and not viewed as particularly partisan one way or the other. In this case, the chair was retired New Jersey Supreme Court Justice John Wallace, uniformly respected, been out of politics and off the bench for a number of years already. You recall he was the sort of victim of some partisan politics when Governor Christie did not reappoint him, even though he would have only served a matter of months until he would have reached the mandatory retirement age of 70. But I digress. So here the Republican side wasn't happy with the result and they attacked the process. They said the process was arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable. They identified political contributions made by the chair's wife. They didn't like the thought process that the chair shared when the districts were approved and also did not approve of the method by which the chair shared information between the two camps. This was a highly public process, lots of public meetings, lots of private meetings, and as I say, enormous amount of media coverage. It's act actually a very interesting part of our governmental system. The idea, obviously, is to create congressional districts that bring people together based upon geography, based upon township and municipality lines as much as possible and keep it contiguous, not to create gerrymandered districts that make it so this district will always be a Dem and this will always be a Republican. For those devoted old sidebar listeners, you'll recall Judge Nelson Johnson coming on and talking with me about Frank Haig and Chief Justice Vanderbilt, our first Chief Justice under the new Constitution, the 1947 Constitution. And in Jersey City, they had the Horseshoe, which was a district designed to keep all the Irish together, all the Irish Catholics together, so that the uh, growing population wouldn't gain political power. Anyway, that's one classic gerrymandering device that has been ruled unconstitutional. And there's a ton of U.S. Supreme Court decisions on this. 
how did the chief deal with all this? The chief justice went through each of the allegations in a numbered format and stating that it was not the court's job to mitigate political partisan processes, that this is not a legal process, it's a political process fenced in by statute, case law, and the Constitution, but nonetheless, it's sort of whatever goes inside the political process is political, not legal. You can't run to the courts and say, hey, that political actor on the other side is doing something I don't like. Again, highly public partisan process. The court essentially debunked all of the allegations, and the reason was simple. The Republicans did not state that the map was discriminatory, that the map was a constitutionally tainted map that would deprive people of the right to vote, that would somehow, again, pen in some groups, that would guarantee some party would always win a district and another party would always win another district, that it was not put together in an illegal or discriminatory way. Hence, all of the arguments failed and the court summarily uh, dealt with this interesting political case slash legal, but mostly politics. Most of us lawyers and judges at least like the whiff of politics, even though it may not permeate our decision-making or who we're representing or who we're fighting for or how we're adjudicating cases, but it's very good theater. Read the opinion, and then if you didn't check it out, go back and follow some of the news coverage over the past several months. Good stuff. Last one for today is another mouthful. Libertarians for Transparent Government versus Cumberland County. And this case deals with The clear trend in governmental transparency, at least in New Jersey, I'm not sure if this permeates across the other states or into the federal government, but the courts have taken Oprah seriously. And as these cases make their way up to the Supreme Court, it's pretty clear where the court is going to come down. We just had a case dealing with the dog permits, the dog license for applications in Jersey City, Bozzi v. Jersey City. And the court said, we're going to allow these license applications to be public, redacted for good reason. But the default is things are going to be publicly available. Here you've got the ACLU, Alexander Shalom, and a consortium of interested media players with Bruce Rosen representing the Amici there. Here are the facts. A corrections officer in Cumberland County named Ellis was subject to discipline for having inappropriate fraternization with two female inmates, allegations of some sexual interaction, and they make a deal with Ellis. Ellis retires, gets a reduced pension, and agrees to cooperate in connection with an investigation of other corrections officers. So they sign an agreement, and as up until now, all of these sort of agreements were always viewed as a confidential agreement. We also had the Attorney General Directive dealing with major police discipline, that is, any discipline that would cause an officer to be suspended for five days or more, that uh, any of that discipline would become public. So part of this trend, again, is when someone's going to 
be disciplined and there'll be consequences, the record, at least in part, will become public. Oprah provides specifically that personnel matters ought to be confidential and not subject to the public gaining these documents through Oprah. However, what can always be exposed as it relates to government officials is the name, title, position, salary, length of service, date of separation, and reason for separation. Here, the county refused to release the separation agreement. Instead, they just released the minimum amount of information. They reported out information, not the actual records. So this, there's a tension here between protected personnel records and both statutory and, and case law mandate toward government transparency. How does the court rule? Well, let's go back to D. Prospero v. Penn, one of the court's favorites and my favorite cases. That is, my favorite cases. That is, when you read a statute, you read it with the common understanding of the language and the intent of the black and white words, the authors of the statute. Read the words and follow those words. So in that light, the court found that the actual records must be released on a legitimate Oprah request, redacted to maintain what the participant, the personnel that were impacted by a government decision would have as a reasonable expectation of privacy. So this is going to continue to be shaped going forward, but the court certainly is going to require the government to produce those minimum amount of basic information plus the actual records with redactions. So it almost seems like it's the government's burden to justify those redactions and to indicate a justification that the individuals involved had a reasonable expectation of privacy. So to be continued, but that's an interesting case. That was penned by Chief Justice Ravner, and that's a unanimous six of our justices at the time. So only Justice Lavecchia not participating as she had retired at the end of 2021. So that's it for today. Really appreciate you guys listening. Our listenership does go up a little bit at a time, and uh, that's a testament to people passing this around and uh, my, my regulars listening and checking back in with me. So feel free to check back. Easiest way is email jhorn at hornlawgroup.net. And I will keep plugging away. Hope everyone's well. And uh, we will get this out to you guys in the middle of March 2022. Thanks so much.